Hello, my name is Jordan Tardif. I'm currently a Master of Library and Information Science student at the University of Western Ontario. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Professor David Proveca from the University of Waterloo about manuscript studies, digitization practices, and how it's affected accessibility for students and researchers over his years of experience. A little background about myself. As I said, I'm currently a Master of Library and Information Sciences student at the University of Western Ontario. Prior to this, I was a Master of Arts student at the University of Waterloo, and Professor Pereka was my supervisor, which is how I know him and was able to get him along for the interview. During my time at the University of Waterloo, I worked at the Digital Research in Arts and Graphic Environmental Networks Lab, otherwise referred to as the Dragon Lab. Here, I worked primarily in manuscript studies, doing paleography for six years, as well as participating in several other projects, including manuscript digitization, digitizing microfilm into JPEG and PNG images, as well as several other manuscript-related jobs. I've asked Professor Pereka to introduce himself during this interview, mostly because if I tried to introduce him, I am sure I would absolutely butcher the French names of institutions and places where he went to school and also has some work experience. Additionally, a handful of times during this interview, you may hear some terms or concepts you're unfamiliar with. If I don't ask Professor Pereka for clarification in the moment, I may pause the interview and interject myself um, just to help explain some of the concepts and terminology that is being used. Without further ado, let's get into the interview. Okay, my name is David Boreka and I am a faculty member at the University of Waterloo in the Department of Classical Studies. I am the medievalist in that department. I'm also currently department chair. Uh, my background is in uh, pure and applied science up to and including first year university or last year of CIGEP uh, in Quebec. And I shifted from uh, that to medieval studies for my undergraduate, went on to do a master's degree at the University of Toronto, uh, and then a PhD at the Warburg Institute, which is an institute dedicated to the heritage of the classical tradition based in London and um, attached to the University of London. My PhD uh, is dated to 2001, so oh. it's, uh, it's not hot off the press, let's say. And you've been teaching at UW since? I've been teaching at University of Waterloo. So from the PhD in, at the Warburg, I did one year of sessional instruction at Wilfrid Laurier University. Then I got a postdoc, a Shirk postdoc at Wilfrid Laurier in the Department of Religion and Culture. Um, the latter half of which I had to give up when the job I currently hold came up and I got it. As well get right into it with the questions on Please do. manuscript studies. Um, so we'll start with your undergraduate. Um, on our way over here, you mentioned that you didn't have exposure to manuscript studies, but you had epigraphy. Yes. So during my undergraduate, uh, my first ex my first and only exposure to manuscripts was by being 
brought to the Kalamazoo, the International Congress on Medieval Studies at Kalamazoo, Michigan, hosted by Western Michigan University. Uh, that is in, in the sales area of that particular Congress, which is the largest Congress on medieval studies in the world, if I'm not mistaken, definitely in North America. 3,500 medievalists gather every uh, May for, for that particular event. It was manuscript dealers there. That was my first exposure to actual, to actual manuscripts, where I got to handle a 12th century copy of Cicero's letters that had the hefty price tag of 50,000 US dollars from 1994. So that was my first exposure to manuscripts per se, which was completely intriguing and I'm still in the field uh, myself. In terms of formal academic contact, uh, there was none really because there were no real manuscripts available in the local area here in Waterloo. Uh, my exposure to the realia of uh, ancient and medieval material was restricted to ep epigraphy, Roman epigraphy in particular. In the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, that where they have a substantial collection of Roman inscriptions, as well as squeezes of many more Roman inscri inscriptions. And so we got to handle the real thing there, as well as another field trip to the University of Toronto, not the, sorry, the, um, the ROM. Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, where they also have uh, a certain number of Roman inscriptions that we were encouraged to sort of em employ our skill, the skills we were taught in class to read the real thing right in front of us. So uh, for those that don't know, what is a squeeze? A squeeze is uh, a, uh, a wet uh, paper um, covering that one presses or squeezes into a stone inscription where the uh, the carved out lettering leaves uh, leaves dents in the paper in question, and you peel it off gently and you let it dry, and it holds a record of the entire surface of the the inscribed stone in question. Uh, it doesn't damage the stone because these stones are normally are, are built to be exposed to the elements. It, it's a technique that can be employed on uh, stone inscriptions of any date really, uh, whether ancient, medieval, or more recent. Uh, some, uh, some, you know, 19th century tombstones that are made uh, out of a friable sandstone tend to erode in the elements quite rapidly. And so in some cases, local history uh, museums in England have been uh, making squeezes of the tombstone of, of their medieval and more recent tombstones um, in order to preserve them. Uh, because when they're exposed to the elements, they degrade and become illegible at some point. Similar to like charcoal grafting. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's a similar technique that the that uh, brass rubbings are based on, where you you have the you know the the brass tombstone that has a, a, some sort of sculpture in relief, but it's flat. You can take a sheet of paper and a crayon of whatever color you'd care to. Usually, it's a gold or silver color, and you sort of do a rubbing on the surface of uh, the paper that covers the, the the brass engraving and you end up with a an image of that brass engraving on your piece of paper that you can carry away. Similar sort of thing. Um, the, the squeezes are in, in particular used by archaeologists who uh, uncover inscriptions but can't uh, or, or aren't allowed to remove them from the site but still want a, re a take-home record of what it is that they've found. So... Um, they're 
some museums have huge collections of squeezes and others have more modest ones at Ann Arbor. They have both the inscriptions and squeezes of their own inscriptions as well as other sque squeezes of other inscriptions as well. Cool. And so in your undergraduate, you didn't have access to manuscripts, really. Um, but as you progressed through your education mm -hmm. and into professional practice, um, how did you become more exposed to manuscripts, I guess? And so that happened at the master's level at the University of Toronto, where I took simultaneously a course on Latin paleography and on codicology, both taught by the late Professor Virginia Brown, uh, who is otherwise famous for uh, making several discoveries of Beneventan script um, in Palimpsest, no less. So, so she was teaching, normally she would teach a full year paleography seminar. She was going on sabbatical during the winter term. So I only got the first half of it that covered up to and including Caroline Minuscule. But uh, I convinced her to sell me the course packets of, of printed um, selected materials to do with Gothic script and humanistic script, such that I have all the resources for the the full year course while only having taken half of it. Uh, the codicology in particular was where we got to handle actual manuscripts as opposed to photocopies of images. Uh, because the codicology, of course, is the archaeology of the book, where there is very little sense in looking at images when, uh, you know, looking where figuring out how a book was put together physically, you need to have the book in your hands to do that. It only makes sense. So that's where we got to go to the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Room at the University of Toronto and handle some of their collection. We also got to look at some papyri. Um, and um, we one of the term projects was, in fact, to work on the Otto Eggy collections of manuscript leaves. That uh, Otto Eggy was a U.S. industrialist from the earlier 20th century who decided for the sake of uh, pedagogical purposes had purchased a, a wide variety of manuscripts, three dozen of them, if I'm not mistaken, perhaps more, uh, and cut them up and put sample leaves from each of these three dozen manuscripts in carefully labeled uh, and packaged boxes that could then be sold to various institutions to increase access of random people across North America to original medieval materials. Um, <clears throat> and great efforts are currently being deployed by colleagues I have in the U.S. to attempt to reconstruct some of the Otto Eggy manuscripts. I mean, there was a, a Renaissance, I recall, working on a 12th, early, late 12th, early 13th century um, uh, Glossa Ordinaria Bible. I recall working on a 15th century Livy uh, and the third sample, I can't remember what it was off the top of my head, but uh, they were they were the real things. Toronto happens to own three Otto Eggy boxes. One of them is at the uh, the AGO. Another one is at Thomas Fisher, I think, and the other one is at Massey College. So got to look at each of those in turn, and uh, you know do the usual sort of transcribing and describing for the project, uh, for the codicology project of those of those three separate manuscript leaves, each from the same original manuscript. 
So you got to do the measurements of the, the text area on the page versus the size of the page itself and so on. And for the uh, annotated Bible, the Glossa Ordinaria, it was particularly challenging because it was one of the earlier iterations of this kind of thing. And the layout on the manuscript page was an absolute mess. And it was very, very difficult to describe systematically and scientifically, you know, note A, note B, note C, note D, note E, etc., all the way down to P or Q or something, because there's all these little blocks of text that correspond, that explain a single word in, in the original biblical text. And sometimes there are glosses on the glosses. And it's really a messy, messy layout. And trying to adopt a systematic approach to this kind of thing is really not very easy because they are sort of organically built as each page gets written up in the originals. So there you go. So that, so I guess that was the exposure at the MA level, at the PhD level. I didn't, um, I ended up getting funding to take several different trips to see manuscripts uh, in various European libraries, sort of the equivalent of a band going on tour, except that instead of playing shows, I would go to libraries and go to look at the manuscripts. And I was looking in particular for marginal notes to the hermetic text uh, attributed to Hermes Trismegistus known as the Asclepius. So I was doing a project on seeing how this text was read over the course of the Middle Ages. So marginal notes matter a great deal when it comes to this sort of thing. A text without marginal notes ha is less likely to have been actively read than something that does have marginal notes. And so <clears throat> in each instance, I was trying to see as many of the original uh, manuscripts of the Asclepius as I could get my eyes on. And uh, of the complete texts that survive, I saw all but one of them. Um, at some point or other, and have obtained reproductions in some form or other of many of them. I won't say all, but many. Um, so, and that required, so that was the first iteration of one of these manuscript viewing tours. And the second one had to do with trying to find uh, in other writings from the Middle Ages, references to Hermes Trismegistus in unpublished texts. So I had made a, a prioritized list of unpublished medieval philosophical and theological texts that uh, I sort of figured out from manuscript catalogs and so on where extant texts of extant versions of these texts were housed and created for myself an itinerary and spent something like two months traveling around Europe from manuscript library to manuscript library. I spent about three weeks at the Vatican and then it was, and a month in Paris as well. Uh, and, um, and various other places in between. And it was, it was an extremely valuable experience. And I, I wish I knew more than when I was doing those things. Uh, but you go with the skill set you have when you do these things. So between your master's and PhD programs, most of the manuscripts you handled were physical versions? Yes. Um, well, you, you, yes and no, in the sense that uh, in a place like uh, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, if they have a microfilm of the thing you want to see, they will preferentially let you look at the microfilm on site rather than the original. You have to, to have a decent argument and, and, and say, state your case as to why you need to see the original as opposed to uh, a microfilm. And 
in the case of marginal notes, the photographs of uh, many of the pages sort of cut off are, are cropped, and the marginal notes are not visible, or they uh, kind of get bent into the binding in the middle of the book, such that a photograph taken from above loses that text. And you kind of have to have the physical copy to lean it to one side and see what's in uh, in the crease, so to speak. So in many instances, I got to see the originals when microfilms were available for those exact reasons, because it's not the main text I was interested in. It's the marginal notes that aren't always visible. Uh, there are other reasons why manuscripts aren't allowed to be seen uh, in particular, when they contain a large number of red text that tends to be uh, photosensitive and fades when exposed to light. That's why a, a can of cola that is left by the railway tracks will turn white if left there for a few seasons. I'm sure you've seen that happen here and there on the roadside. So <clears throat> at the British Library, they're quite keen to restrict access to the one manuscript, and it had to be viewed in a sort of dimly lit room so that to minimize the exposure to photons that would damage uh, the material. So protection of the materials is really the, the main focus, I think, of uh, manuscript libraries rather than accessibility, let's say. I think that leads well into okay. the next set of questions. Sure, sure. Is, um, how accessibility to manuscripts has changed over time. Yes. Um, yes. It has changed a great deal in the sense that when I launched myself onto these manuscript tours, I was armed with individually addressed reference letters addressed to each librarian at each of the libraries that I was intending to visit, signed by the director of my institute to confirm that I am indeed a properly trained person who is, uh, who is appro appropriately trained to look at these things without damaging them. And the word of the director of the Warburg Institute was sufficient to make that happen. And I recall the stack being almost a centimeter thick when I left. Uh, <clears throat> and I may have one or two samples of those left uh, where the libraries didn't keep them in the first place. Um, so, so, yeah, it was difficult. You needed reference letters to get into these libraries in the first place. And <clears throat> which is in sharp contrast to when these libraries digitize their collections and make those high-resolution digital images available to all and sundry online. Um, they, the manuscripts themselves have to be exposed to very bright light in order for these photographs to be taken, uh, which in the case of things that have a lot of illustrations and a lot of red text, I can see the libraries wanting to minimize to, to shorten that process as much as possible. Um, but broadly speaking, access has changed a great deal and that nobody needs a reference letter to consult a digital manuscript online, right? So, um, so in that sense, accessibility has increased a great deal, but it is not systematic in that there's lots of material that still isn't digitized. Uh, in some instances, the digitization suffers from the same problems as what I was describing for the Biotech Nationale earlier, whereby photographs that are taken from above uh, leave some information to be lost in the crease of the binding. Um, <clears throat> and it's very difficult to conduct any sort of codicological study on a manuscript without actually handling it, where you're needing to examine the, the threads of the binding and the choirs uh, of collected leaves and counting those up and so on. That's not something that can be done very readily uh, with, a digitized, uh, with a digitized version. No matter how high res the 
a photo of the cover of a book might be, you don't get a sense of its texture if you don't handle it. So there's inevitably some information lost. It, I mean, you have to you have to be really into the codicology for it to matter. But for some, it does matter. And if if binding is what you're studying, then photographs often will not do. Um, and it's difficult also to get a sense of scale of how big a manuscript is because the digital images are infinitely zoomable in both directions. And unless there's, and I mean, most digitization projects have a scale meter on at least one of the photos so you can get some sense of it. But intuitively, well, it's much less intuitive, let's say, than actually handling the thing. We're a pocketbook versus a folio volume. Uh, you know, the, you know, just they're, they're self-evident, but on a, on a zoomed in image, it's not necessarily obvious unless you have that scale marker right there. A pocketbook is a book small enough to fit in your pocket. The uh, smallest I have seen personally is one inch by one inch, while a folio, folio volume or folio codex, the size of that would be a full folio, um, roughly the size of legal paper today for each page. So accessibility has changed in that it's much more widespread. It's much, much cheaper. You don't need to travel uh, expensively and with emission, carbon emissions and so on uh, being saved in the process. At the same time, it's worthy of consideration as to how much uh, energy is expended in the server farms to keep all these fancy images running as well. It's, it's, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And uh, so in, you know, for all the physical travel that these things have saved uh, of people moving about, uh, they there is a sort of ongoing 24-7 uh, cost that's associated with them in terms of, of the electricity that's needed to keep the server farms running. It's the same thing for the entire internet. This information that we're talking about happens to be more valuable, in my view, than most of what's on the internet, broadly speaking, but nevertheless, it's not free. And manuscripts ha manuscript libraries have to be fairly well funded to maintain these large image, large databases of images, uh, and to keep them accessible and so on. So, uh, so I'm going to skip ahead in our questions sure. a little bit because um, it's a little more pertinent to okay, sure. that. There are several studies that have a growing concern about the size requirements for digitizing these files, and they're cost long term. Yes. I mean, these aren't videos. So the, I mean, by definition, they will be less costly. It depends how, how ridiculously dense the images themselves are in terms of information per square centimeter on a screen or whatever. Uh, and I'm sure there's technical terms for that, that I'm just ignorant of. And I'm sure you, you may well have learned about them along the way in your classes. Uh, but yeah, there is absolutely a cost. Um, and you mentioned that, particularly the Paris Library, if manuscript library, if they had a microfilm available, they would prefer you to view the microfilm. Yep. Libraries in a lot of those studies are transitioning to if they have a digital copy available, they prefer you to view that yep. for the same reasons of yeah, same reason. keeping everything safe. Um, do you have concerns about like how hard that is making physical access? Oh, <clears throat> uh, I haven't tried to access physical manuscripts in a long time, to be fair. Um, and certainly the diligent efforts that digitizers, that library libraries that have digitization in initiatives, those that have been successful were absolutely instrumental, especially during the pandemic in terms of keeping my research program going. 
So in this case, it wasn't necessarily manuscripts, but early printed books like in Cunabula that uh, were crucial for us to pull together uh, our latest book, which is Marsilio Ficino on the Christ uh, translation of Marsilio Ficino's on the Christian religion. So we were chasing down Ficino's sources, and those sources tended to be printed in Incunabula that would have cost multiple thousands of dollars for a trip to go view them in Paris or uh, Rome, whereas now we could sit in our pandemic-ridden offices, not ridden, but, you know, restricted to our pandemic off pandemic uh, offices and uh, do do the thing that these uh, digitized digitization efforts produced. Now, in terms of accessibility, I'm not aware of any increased restrictions on um, access to materials. I suspect that the same concerns abide um, and that li libraries, broadly speaking, want their collections to see use. It's their main, I mean, preservation and transmission of knowledge are the two purposes of a library. And if you do uh, the one too too restrictively uh you don't transmit it and so it get it can get lost which is sort of how in the renaissance um uh lucretius's de rerum natura ends up being recovered from manus from monastic libraries that simply were so eager to, re to restrict access to these the, to this pagan scientific poetry um for religious reasons that uh, they didn't even know they had them. And it took these initiative-taking Italian humanists like Poggio Bracciolini to go off on missions to libraries to dig this stuff out. That in many cases, the libraries, li libraries and librarians themselves didn't know what they had. But that's 500 plus years ago. Um, currently, I don't know. I don't, as far as I know, there isn't any increased restriction on accessing materials despite the existence of uh, digitized copies. Uh, it's, I suspect that it means that fewer people are in fact traveling because of the much lower cost of there not being any need to travel as much anymore. And I suspect that codicologists are traveling just as much as they always have, uh, but paleographers and text editors don't need to travel as much as they used to. Uh, I haven't been on a manuscript viewing tour since 2005. I can't see myself needing to do one again, honestly. Um, as fun as it was, to be honest. And it was really useful to gain, to sort of handle such a wide variety of books to get a, a good sense of how a medieval book is put together. Um, and to identify, you know, the difference in a 19th century rebinding versus an original and this kind of thing. So... In terms of accessibility, yeah, I don't see there, you know, the things aren't any less accessible. It's just that there are fewer people accessing the physical copies. Uh, that that said, like, as I've just pointed out, I haven't been to do anything like this in 17 years. So I don't have, have any information on the ground as to how packed the British Library's manuscript reading room is nowadays versus 20 years ago, let's say, when I was last there. So... Over time, would you say that the way that you prefer to access manuscripts has changed? That That's a difficult question to answer because it's so much fun actually handling the things and smelling them. That's another thing that no digitized thing could ever reproduce is the actual odor in a manuscript library. 
uh, and it's completely distinctive and it's the, the product of, you know, humidity plus lots and lots and lots of animal skin. Uh, it's like going into a leather shop, but these things aren't leather, they're manuscripts. And so they, there's a different kind of aroma that emerges from, uh, and in those libraries that have both manuscripts and early printed books, the sourness of the early paper is another thing that comes across in an olfactory kind of experience. <clears throat> I can't say I've ever tasted any of this stuff, but, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the, um, the modes of preparation of, of, uh, parchment suggest that, you know, it, it, it's animal hide, right? That there's no way around that. Um, what was the question again? I got lost in that. Has your preferred way. Of... Oh, preferred way. Right, right, right. So there's certain portions of the experience that are lost when you do, when you consult a digitized thing. At the same time, you can consult a digital thing from the comfort of your living room. So it's, a, it's much less disruptive and expensive for the individual to uh, access things digitally, uh, for better or for worse, I guess, in the sense that it's really handy. You don't have to deploy yourself. There's no personal fortune involved. There's no international travel, but, uh, you know, per personal in the sense that one doesn't have to invest one's own money in order to get oneself to a digitized copy, aside from having your regular internet access. Um, at the same time, there is some value in actually handling these things for real, I would say. Uh, and as a student who's handled manuscript leaves at the very least, you know, you know, you have some notion of what I'm talking about and you just have to sort of expand from your experience to, you know, spending a month in Paris needing to look at 24 different manuscripts kind of thing. Um, so my preferred, at this point in my life, my preferred thing is probably not to travel because it's not my turn anymore. And uh, I know Jordan, you've heard me talk about the, that sort of thing before. I don't want to belabor it too, too much, but it's not my turn to take planes anymore. So if anybody's going to take a plane, it should be someone who's not had these experiences as compared to myself where I've, I've done the thing. And uh, at the same time, I guess, and this might be something that you, that belongs under a different question. Certain manuscript libraries have, have limited resources. And so they can't digitize everything. And they only select certain, the prettiest things, the things that they think people will want to see the most and so on, such that in some instances you aspire to see the digital version. It doesn't exist. And you have to ar make alternate arrangements to actually view the thing, which can involve uh, travel. So travel isn't, isn't, hasn't yet been replaced by digitization, but the need for travel has been reduced a great deal. I would say, uh, what's, yeah, my preferred is to honestly stay home and let others uh, get those experiences, but that's my personal choice rather than a broad principle being stated. Okay. okay. Um, and then I guess I'll sort of back around to yeah. the cost of digitizing all these manuscripts. Yes. Um, so with the costs associated, there are concerns, um, that, marginalized communities or low-income states not being able to digitize their manuscripts may reduce the likelihood that those manus like manuscripts from those places, communities, or countries are able to have research conducted on them just because people don't know they're there. That's an entirely likely scenario. It's entirely credible because the equipment you need for digitizing things properly isn't cheap. 
granted it's it's a sort of one-time purchase once you have it uh you have it but every library's collection is limited and at some point once everything is digitized that digitization equipment becomes a stranded asset unless you can sell it on uh and i can see definitely low so advantages of digitization that the stuff that is in fact digitized is much more accessible to people at a much lower cost that even on a, a mobile phone you can look at this stuff uh and apparently you know 80% of folk in Africa have a mobile phone and so it's so in that sense once they're digitized there's a great deal of access that's available to a, a large uh, slice of the population the capacity to digitize in the first place isn't cheap both in terms of the equipment as well as in terms of the uh the manpower to do the work itself in a way that is uh not damaging to the materials themselves because that's a whole skill set that digitizers really should be trained in before undertaking any project like this um and <clears throat> you know cuz if it's not done properly there's risk of further damage to the materials and this kind of thing uh and certainly when collections in uh you know less well funded areas of the world don't get digitized for reasons of lack of funding um digitization is a form of preservation that's it's it's second best to the originals but in in many instances even in the in the relatively distant past of the early 20th century um reproductions uh end up being in many cases the only surviving copies of many manuscripts that were bombed to smithereens in the second world war for example or more recently in the war in the balkans in the 1990s um so <clears throat> there's value to doing any form of reproduction um even if it's by hand from one manuscript to another manuscript which is how it was done in the middle ages for every copy of everything regardless uh and in many instances those less well funded places are precisely the ones that are war torn and so the materials that are held there are at risk um and the ransacking of the library in Timbuktu Mali in a, a number of years ago comes to mind as one of the main cultural losses that's happened in the you know very in the recent past uh there are <clears throat> on purpose initiatives uh that have been put in place in places like the hill medieval monastic library which is in minnesota um strategically positioned as far as possible from any ocean such that there's no potential for tsunamis uh it is in a geologically very stable place it is as far from any place of interest for war bands as one could conceive of in the middle of rural minnesota such that it is a place where that is has been intentionally chosen geographically to be a repository of manuscript reproductions and they have the largest collection of ethiopic manuscripts for example in reproduction of anywhere and i have a former uh, student of mine uh, augustin dickinson who specializes in exactly that stuff and he spent uh the better part of this academic term at hemel to look at this stuff and conduct his research he's now doing a phd in hamburg under the supervision of alessandro bauzi who is the world's authority on medieval ethiopic everything um and his 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 funded phd task is to to build a database of medieval ethiopic devotional poetry in gaz gaz mentioned here by professor pereka is the ethiopic language um that many of their manuscripts are written in 
Um, so there is, in terms of accessibility, um, I would say, yeah, there's definitely a risk of, uh, for less well-endowed places to have their collections of precious objects uh, just disappear through destruction, uh, partly on account of not being digitized. That being said, digitization is better than nothing, but it's not the original, right? So you have to deal with the shortcomings that we were describing earlier about certain information, especially codicological information being lost when a thing is digitized. So. You mentioned that librarians working on manuscript digitization projects should be trained on manuscript preservation to ensure they are not damaged, the manuscripts are not damaged during the process. Do you have suggestions or know where librarians could go to get this training? I would say consult with those who have done it well before. Um, and, you know, the, the uh, Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Munich comes to mind. I think all major libraries in Switzerland have also digitized all of their stuff well. Um, uh, but you really, yeah, you want to talk to a conservationist, I think, rather than uh, uh, just sort of plain librarian, because the conservationist will be much more aware of these kinds of issues. Uh, because it, it's almost like you need training in both to, to do that task well without damaging the stuff. Um, I'd be so a place like the British Library will the the people you have to have an in you have to know somebody there in order to to f get the information you want because they tend to be pretty busy and because it's the British Library they receive these kinds of requests all the time uh, such that in many instances I suspect they can't they don't have the spare capacity to respond to every request they receive um, so you know more local major library collections that might be more benevolent with their time. Uh, I would, I mean, the Thomas Fisher Rare Book Room in Toronto is probably one of those places whose collection is sufficiently large and uh, sufficiently in need of conservation that um, they would have the expertise on site. I'd, I'd be pretty surprised if they didn't in terms of looking more locally rather than, uh, you know, racing all the way to Europe or whatever. Um, but yeah, talking to the, the conservers rather than the librarians themselves, that would be a, a good place to start. Uh, but I, I can't imagine like Princeton or Yale have not having that kind of expertise in-house. Um, so and the, the first place to start, I would guess, is the local rare books library in person who should, if even if they don't happen to own any manuscripts themselves, they will at, at least know someone who does kind of thing. So if you're going to start somewhere, start local, start, keep it simple, start local and expand from there. Uh, I would suggest. So, yeah. I'm going to go into some questions about your teaching yeah. um, students. Um, so you've been teaching the intro to medieval studies course. Intro to medieval studies here is medieval 105. Uh, later, Professor Pereka and myself refer to it as 105. Um, this is the course that we are referring to. For... This is the 18th time I've taught it since 2005, when I first started that course. So uh, it's a an in, it's an intro to medieval studies that takes the approach of 
answering the question of how we get to know what we know about the Middle Ages. And the first major unit of content after the historical background is, in fact, bibliography, um, which you may recall. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's really neat to get students to lift the veil, so to speak, on the, uh, the practice of a medievalist who needs to look at manuscripts. So, you know, I do a brief uh, sort of overview of the history of Latin script from, you know, Roman cursive all the way up to humanistic uh, handwriting in Latin. And um, as well as sort of a brief introduction to things like abbreviations and, you know, how it is that one can date a manuscript based on the style of its script, that it it's a technique that's particularly well suited to Latin that doesn't apply as much to things like Arabic manuscripts. You can still do it, but the script didn't change as much for Arabic as it did for Latin, such that the patterns are less easy to detect. Same thing for Hebrew. Um, so, <clears throat> so yes, we're, we're, so 105, I, I talk about that. Uh, I talk about manuscripts there, as well as codicology, as well as diplomatics. So the study of archival uh, documents, uh, sort of wills and contracts and stuff like that. Um, I don't have occasion to deal with those kinds of materials myself in my research. So that part of the teaching is kind of more secondhand. I don't have primary experience in it. Uh, although there are some charters now, it seems, at the Dragon Lab at Waterloo. Uh, and certainly they have 18th century charters at the Rare Book Room at Dana Porter now, yeah. which is pretty cool. And the format remains the same yeah. uh, of charters over all this time, which is pretty neat. So I'm not sure if I... Uh, that, that's a good background. <laughs> that's a good background. So that's, that's the, that was the intro course. Now, I also have taught at both the senior undergrad as well as master's level, uh, paleography, Latin paleography as a language class, uh, but where students both practice the language by virtue of translating the text they transcribe, but the principal exercise is an accurate transcription of the text in question. And I've taught that class twice in my career so far, only twice. Um, the, and both in both instances, the texts chosen dovetailed with the research I was doing at the time. In the first case, it was transcribing the Latin Asclepius hermetic text that I mentioned earlier, where students were uh, each given reproductions of a different manuscript of the text and were to do their own transcription of that. Uh, and in class, we considered the differences in, in spelling and in word order and in consequent meaning to the text, because realistically, you know, a medieval reader wouldn't be reading a critical edition that is a synthesis of all 70 different manuscripts. They're going to be reading the copy in front of them and they won't be aware of any of the differences. And so the modern critical edition is kind of a Frankenstein hybrid of that that would that would not that does not correspond to the experience a medieval reader would have of these texts uh where they would be reading usually one individual copy that contains all the idiosyncrasies of that particular copy now the modern critical edition will have the critical apparatus that describes you know you you could reconstruct an individual manuscript's text based on the apparatus criticus that is that a good critical edition ought to have. Um, but that's more effort than it's worth, uh, for sure. Uh, but 
Um, so that, that was the exercise for the first iteration of the paleography course. The second one was focused on Thomas of York's Sapientiale, where there are three manuscripts extant, and uh, students were given each a portion of that text to transcribe themselves from one of them from was it one of the manuscripts yeah um so that was also a useful exercise with a somewhat more restricted range of dates to the scripts that were being handled uh because it's three manuscripts all of them from the late 13th and to the mid 14th century um and the text itself the latin of the text itself is scholastic theology so the exercise there was much more on the paleography side than on the Latin side, I would say, uh, because these are these were manuscripts that were intended for an educated audience that was familiar with the jargon and with all the abbreviations. Um, whereas many of the copies of the Asclepius, Asclepius is a much more literary, literarily oriented text, if that's a word. Uh, that um, that is much more classical and in itself is a translation from Greek. So there's a bunch of Greek Greekisms and the Latin is much more challenging than the transcription, I would say, in the case of the Asclepius. So the class itself intends to cover both, like to provide practice in transcribing as well as some practice with the language. So uh, I wish I could teach that stuff more often, honestly, because it's a lot of fun uh, and it really puts students in contact with the real thing in as much as one can when they're reproductions. Yeah. I'll vouch for it. It was fun. It was fun. Okay. Was great <laughs> Wonderful. Good to hear. And then it's nice to have a good combination of students of different levels. Uh, the first time I taught it, it was only fourth year students. And this time it was uh, um, like fourth year, like senior undergrads, as well as master's students. And there's, uh, there's a certain amount of, of happy cross feeding that happens between students at different levels doing the same thing. Um, and very few of the class, uh, the, the folks in the class had any experience doing any of this. So they're all kind of starting at the same level, but the master students have a bit more background in terms of language. So it's a little easier for them so they can help, you know, give, lend a helping hand, so to speak. Um, and, uh, yeah. And those of us without the background in the language yeah. had more background in the paleography. Had more background in the paleography. That's absolutely true in that particular instance, which was a bit of a strange circumstance, actually. Uh, so, but collectively the skill set was there to pull it off, which was quite wonderful and very satisfying to watch from, from, uh, well, not from a distance, but, you know, from the teacher's chair, so to speak. So, yeah. Uh, so across the 18 years of teaching the intro to yeah. medieval studies and then the two paleography classes, um, how has, how you're having the students interact with the manuscripts change? And like what resources you've oh, made available to okay, them for right. that. So the main contrast here is between the first and the second paleography iterations, where in the first instance it was uh, paper photocopies or printouts of either microfilm or digital copies of the Asclepius manuscripts. Uh, there were very few digital ones. Most of them are were microfilms that I pushed print on a microfilm printer and got it to spit it out. Um, for the more recent paleography that was for Thomas of York, we had one very good high-res digital version, which is the one we worked from in class. Uh, and students, and I still have 
the microfilms of the two others, and it was printouts from those microfilms that were still used. So at least for the in-class experience, I was able to use a, a projector and a sort of zoomable kind of uh, setup for uh, the transcription exercise in class, and that that was utterly impossible in the first instance. Um, so in that sense, so I forget which library it was, it may have been the Vatican, uh, that had the digitized copy of uh, Thomas of York that we used in class. Yeah, Vatlat. It was Vatican, Vat, yeah, Vatlat. Um, and so that, so their digitization project, they have done, they've undergone two of them. The first one was in the mid-90s in association with IBM, where uh, sort of purpose-built equipment and purpose-designed software was created in order for the Vatican to digitize its stuff. And as is the case in many instances for early adopters of a particular uh, technique of doing things, later on, those those early iterations don't become the standard and they become obsolete and unusable quite quickly, such that uh, the Vatican had perhaps uh, digitized maybe 10% of it, their collection when they realized that the project would have to be abandoned after great expense. Um, because it was the the particular format they had adopted did not end up being taken up as the industry standard, and they would have had this obsolete system of suboptimal. Uh, I don't know how suboptimal the images were. I never actually saw any, but uh, you know, being stranded with a system that no one else uses or knows how to use is not what the Vatican wanted to do after all. And the librarian whose pet project this was ended up uh, dying shortly thereafter, actually. Um, Father Leonard Boyle, who had been working at the University of Toronto uh, prior to becoming Vatican, the head of the Vatican Library. So, yeah. Um, so what else is this? so? What was what's been different? Yeah, being able to work on a high res text in class on a screen is definitely where the value added is in terms of digitization as an as a uh, a help a pedagogical tool. Now, if I shift gears now to comment about the 105 and the experience of paleography in 105, I had been relying on a particular website, medieval writing. Uh, 50.com or something like that for uh, a lot of background stuff and additional images to help students sort of process the the uh, differences between you know Merovingian and Carolingian script and this kind of thing except that that website went offline and it's no longer there and so I'm suddenly bereft of my resource base and I had to shift everything around and try to find alternatives and none of the alternatives were as good as that had been and so that's one of the risks I guess I want to point out and highlight about the digital medium is that it is very ephemeral. Ephemeral. Ephemeral is the right word. Um, because it all hinges on the servers staying working and the lights staying on and somebody willing to maintain, being willing to maintain the website in question, which is a perpetual task. Um, and <clears throat> those costs are, so you so when you digitize a thing, you get the net benefit of it being digitized and being accessible everywhere and so on. Uh, much like building a new bridge 
connects two two different banks of a river and the economic benefit of being able to circulate directly instead of going all the way around to where it can be forded or whatever uh, is a net gain right away. Uh, except that when the bridge starts to fall apart after 75 years or whatever, uh, or when a digitized manuscript uh, becomes inaccessible um, for whatever reason, you're, you're back at square one and all the investment that you put into building the bridge that yielded a benefit the first time, you have to put almost the same amount in again in order simply to get back to, to where you started from. And in the case of a, uh, a, let's say, a data bank of images of manuscripts that is annotated and so on, if that goes down for any reason due to lack of maintenance, <clears throat> the same investment as went into it in the first place has to be put in to bring it back up. Um, and that's what I mean by these things are ephemeral. Um, and I would trust over the long term um, microfilm more than digitization simply because microfilm has proven itself to be useful and um, viable for over a century at this point. Uh, whereas the digital media are, you know, the BBC had a digitized version of the Domesday book produced on laser discs in 1986. And by 2000, it was declared <clears throat> obsolete and unreadable. So <clears throat> to how many of the current digitization projects are going to suffer the same fate. I mean, maybe we've learned from our mistakes and the kinds of mistakes that were made back in the day between the BBC's Domesday Book and the Vatican's digitization project with IBM in the 90s. You know, if, if lessons are actually learned through those uh, efforts and the same mistakes aren't made, then maybe. But at the same time, it all depends on the high-tech stuff remaining operable over the long term. And to me, there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. Sounds reasonable. Um, <laughs> I would say there have been efforts to start standardizing it, which is nice. Right, which is, that's encouraging. And you're probably more aware of those efforts than I am, considering this, that's exactly what you're studying at the moment. So good on you. So, yeah. So then in addition to the courses that you've taught, you've also supervised several grad students. Yes, I have. Who have worked with manuscripts in various functions yes. during their research. Yep. Um, have you noticed a change in how the stu your students are interacting with them or their pre like how they prefer to access the manuscripts <clears throat> hmm hmm the students have well the, each student's project is kind of idiosyncratic and particular to them so it's very difficult to make general comments that would apply to all and, and especially to note trends uh in that sense i mean um students broadly speaking, tend to be <clears throat> much more technologically uh, on on top of their game than and than I am. I don't own a mobile phone, so I so the fact that, you know, manuscripts can be accessed on a on a portable device is great. I mean, but at the same time I did also send a student to the Warburg Institute in London to look at some of their um not manuscripts, but the uh um, archival documents of transcripts of manuscripts that are unpublished while well, things Lillian Wheeler went and did that some uh, a dozen, dozen years ago at this point probably um, <clears throat> so is there a change I mean if there's a change in how, how students access things 
yeah, I guess there is as mobile phones get more and more ubiquitous. Well, they are ubiquitous except for under my roof. Uh, uh, that stuff is accessible, whereas it wasn't previously. So um, I can't say there's a huge, I mean, over the past 10 years, phones have been just about that ubiquitous for around that amount of time. And there's been, so the big change, I guess, is from no phone to phone. And as soon as the phones are introduced and they have sufficient resolution on the screens and sufficient sort of processing capacity that you can load up large images, that, you know, it, it doesn't need to get much better than that. I can see the format being a bit of a pain in the sense that it's a tiny little screen. And these are things that are best looked at in, on a larger format, I would say. Um, yeah. Uh, so we've already touched on, like, future questions um, in some capacity. Uh, one of the ones that I want to ask you about is as new scholars are becoming more comfortable using digital manuscripts on phone or laptop or however, um, you've mentioned limitations in like, not being able to, like codecology yeah. in particular, um, and getting like the marginalia. Yeah. What have you seen any other problems arise in using those or mm. accessing only through digital? Uh, well, the the patchiness of the digitization efforts of any given library is the biggest problem. Um, you know, it's <clears throat> it's as if you know if if you can't go there yourself, you're stuck with what's digitized, and by definition. If you're, if you can only access things digitally, you can only access a subset of what's out there. Um, and that's the biggest problem with relying exclusively on the digital. Um, I, I, I don't expect that travel is going to get much cheaper as the years wear on such that <clears throat> maybe we will end up being stuck merely with what is digital and it would therefore behoove libraries that want to see their collections see use to digitize their stuff. Um, and in many, many places have recognized that. The Bayerische Staatsbibliothek in Munich uh, is one of the places that has digitized everything and and in beautiful accessible for, format and so on. I mean, it still suffers from the same problem of trying to look at a 3D object on a 2D screen, right? Uh, it's suboptimal, but it's a whole lot better than not having access to it at all. Uh, and the expense involved in acquiring, let's say, a, a tablet that has decent resolution plus internet access uh, is much, much lower on the expense scale than taking a three-week trip to Munich. Um, and especially if, you're, if your intent is exploratory uh, in the sense that you want, you want to uh, examine a whole bunch of manuscripts just in case something is there, which was th my my Asclepius project was looking for marginalia. And in many instances, for example, when I went to Toledo, I had to, to stumble through uh, the Spanish and chat, chat with the um, cathedral chapter librarian only to, you know, finally get access to the manuscript. <clears throat> and it took me 15 minutes to determine that there was nothing useful. And I, I did an entire trip to Toledo, Spain, just... To, for that one manuscript, and it turned out to be not useful at all. Had it been digitized, 
it would not have taken me the five days that it took to undertake that entire trip with all the expense that was involved. Uh, and that's not, that's the most extreme example on the, the trips that I've taken, but you know, I could point to uh, a number of others that were fairly similar where there's one or two manuscripts that you're hoping to find something and you show up and you look at them and 20 minutes later, you know, we're done. You know, that's, um, so for exploratory things, the digitization is definitely a, a shortcut. And then once you've identified the stuff that you really want to look at deeply, then it's worth the trip. So, um, because uh, there's, <clears throat> like I said, always information that, uh, so the, di the digital medium creates intermediaries between you and the object you want to look at. And for each of those steps, there's some loss of information. Um, whether it is the, the, the color palette of the actual photograph in the first place, and the interaction of that with whatever it is that your screen can actually display. So we're at two steps removed from the original. Um, and, you know, digital storage isn't perfect. Glitches can happen. Uh, and, you know, uh, the one of the main problems in the digitization world, I think, is data migration, where from one format to the next, uh, if you're, unless you're diligent at updating the format of the images that you're dealing with into a format that remains legible, uh, you end up with a bunch of punch cards on your hands, so to speak, right? That where the, the tools needed to read these images, the images might be fine still, but if you don't have the tools to read them, you may as well not have them. Um, so that's, that's the case for my, the electronic version of my PhD dissertation. In fact, I'm glad that I printed out copies because the format in which it was written is no longer legible by most computers. Um, so yeah, data migration, uh, and even storage storage is another problem where even, um, you know, hard drives fail, uh, digital like optical discs, like CD-ROMs and things like that, uh, decay with exposure to UV light. They decay with exposure to dust. Um, and I, I know from various conferences where I've, the, these sorts of matters have been discussed that <clears throat> main major libraries, let's say like the Newberry, makes systematically when they receive a digital disc, I don't know to what extent that still happens nowadays, but they would always keep the original never use. They use it once to make a copy of it and then make copies of that copy and use those kind of thing and put the original in a uh, temperature controlled, airtight, dust-free, etc. environment to make sure that the original, you know, fits the database of the Patrologia Latina or whatever it happens to be. Um, it's safe. It's as safe as these things can get, um, which is not very safe at all actually, as compared to a paper copy that stood the test of time. So, paper, I mean, even paper copy is, you know, has the, the full set of problems that acidic paper can have. Um, but, uh, yeah, anyway. Of all the manuscripts that you've gone through and worked with yep. and seen, what was the most interesting oh, to you? It remains the Copenhagen manuscript of the Asclepius that has plentiful marginal notes. The manuscript itself contains a bunch of 
of weird and unconnected texts. It has a, a Sidonius Apollinaris's correspondence. It has a bit of his poetry. Uh, there's an extract from uh, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. There's uh, William of Conscious Dragmaticon. Uh, and in the middle of that is the Asclepius. And all of, most of the texts in the manuscript have marginal notes. Uh, I, if I recall correctly, they're all from the same hand. Uh, and in many instances, these marginal notes are shaped like triangles in a diminuendo kind of effect. Uh, and in a couple of instances, they go into an hourglass kind of shape where from a wide line, still these are still in the margin, you have to understand. So it's a pretty narrow strip, but they start wide at the top diminuendo down to the middle in an hourglass and then it expands back at the bottom and in some instances in order to complete the shape in a sort of horror vacui the scribe the the scribe of these marginal notes added o's and i's just to complete the triangle at the bottom for reasons of aesthetics who knows it suggests that these marginal notes were copied from an original as well because you have to be able to estimate the length of a text in the first place in order to create a coherent triangle that ends right at the right spot. Um, the presence of the marginal notes uh, is, is dense. There's an, there's enough of them to suggest that this text was used in a classroom, a uh, medieval classroom, which is quite interesting in itself, considering it's a work of pagan philosophy, theology, uh, where, you know, the downfall of the Egyptian gods is decried in no uncertain and, in no uncertain terms and quite moving terms. In fact, the passage is known as the apocalypse of Egypt and uh, nicknamed that. And it's one of the passages that St. Augustine criticizes quite heavily in his city of God, vocate to the city of God. Um, and yet there's, there are dozens and dozens of this manuscript that survived from the middle ages in some of them quite heavily annotated, showing that it was taught. There's in fact a, a surviving full scale commentary on it that, survives only in a fragment the the first four chapters of the 41 chapter asclepius get extensive treatment so the commentary on those four chapters covers 90 pages of print and if the whole thing had survived it would fill something like 700 pages of modern print commenting on this thing so uh the text was studied despite being pagan and despite being heavily criticized by saint augustine in the city of god no less uh, and that Copenhagen manuscript is by far the most fun manuscript that I've encountered for those marginal notes, I have to say. And it still remains unresolved as to what the purpose of the diminuendo effect in the marginal notes is. I still haven't figured that out. Unresolved mysteries. Um, along similar vein, yes. Uh, what is your favorite manuscript library to, that you've gotten to go to or work in? Oh, boy. Um, for the comfiness of the chairs, the British Library is up there. Um, for the location, oh my gosh, that's a, such a tough question. Um, favorite library, yeah, British Library, definitely for the chairs and just the facilities, broadly speaking. It's just, they invested massively in that place and it's top notch. Uh, the Medici Library, the Lorenziana Library in Florence still many of the manuscripts still have the chains attached dangling from the books because it started out as a library where the books were attached to specific stalls in this large reading room that was sort of like like 
pews in a church, except that there's a desk in front of each of the benches. And at the end of each row is the titles of the three or four books that are on those benches in that particular row. And you'd have to wander up and down. You never moved the books. The scholars moved around the place from book to book when they wanted to. to uh, so they still have that reading room with the benches, with the labels, and they still have the chains attached to the books, but the two are now separate. Yeah. Uh, and the staircase to get up into that reading room was designed by Michelangelo. And it's just this beautiful architectural piece in, in, in uh, massive gray stone. And the problem with that library is that the sockets for plugging in one's computer weren't particularly friendly to the adapter I had for the North American computer to the European electric system. It wouldn't fit, so I had to rely on battery alone. So that was uh, an unfortunate drawback. But for the rest of it, uh, the Vatican has an excellent setup in terms of there being the entire set of reference materials in an adjacent room to the manuscripts themselves, such that you're looking at a manuscript and you need to check a reference to something. Well, you can just sort of, you have to give your manuscript back at the desk, but you can tell them to just hold it for you that you're going to give, you know, go look at some reference books and come back and get your manuscript and keep working. Uh, as opposed to most places where the things are completely separate from each other. Uh, so, and I mean, you're at the Vatican and the building dates back to the 16th, 17th century. And it's quite lovely in its own right. So um, that would be my top three. I would say, um, trying to sort of cycle back in my mind to all the different libraries I've been to, uh, the, um, the place with the friendliest staff was the, uh, Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica in, um, in Amsterdam. And I don't know if that outfit still exists anymore because it was funded by a Dutch industrialist who took an interest in all matters hermetic and started buying books and buying books and buying books and eventually created a library that was uh, sufficiently well stocked to attract scholars and have a research institute associated with it, similar to in story to the Warburg, except that this Dutch industrialist uh, sort of spent his fortune on it and couldn't maintain it. So it had to go public and funding needed to be found, blah, blah. So um, yeah, Ritman, the Ritman library, R-I-T-M-A-N. Um, can look him up. He made his fortune making little plastic stir sticks that for for airplanes. And if you see like on an airplane a little plastic stir stick that has a seven pointed star, that's a, a Ritman thing. And it's the seven pointed star represents the seven planets and blah blah seven days of the week and all that. So he he bought into that stuff quite a bit. And uh, but yeah, the folk there are very friendly. So um, yeah trying to think of some of the others. I mean, I can point to a few libraries in North America that are pretty good too while we're at it. The, the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies in Toronto is uh, noteworthy for having a, a growing, a growingly significant manuscript collection in its own right, as well as a fabulous paleography room that has all the reference materials you'll ever want or need to do with Latin paleography. Um, the only other one like that that I've experienced has been the paleography room at Senate House Library attached to the University of London. Um, so, yeah, where I also took some paleography training, come to think of it, uh, there as well. So, yeah. Um, in terms of collections of reproductions of manuscripts, we have, I mentioned Himmel earlier, the Hill Medieval Monastic Library, 
maybe, yeah, that's what it is. Uh, there's in uh, St. Louis University in uh, in St. Louis, Missouri. Missouri. Uh, they have something like two thirds of the Vatican's uh, collection of manuscripts on microfilm, and these massive Cold War era Kodak uh, uh, readers. They're not printers; they're just readers, and these things are built like no, like a like a bomb shelter. You'd take shelter under one of these things and probably be okay. Um, and it's very simple tech of a light and a, a lens and a an angled surface area and it's, it's there. Um, the library attached to the university of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana has all of the Ambrosia, uh, I'm sorry, Ambrosiana manuscripts on microfilm as well, as well. Uh, Andrew Faulkner is there right now, actually, uh, my departmental colleague, uh, using that library. I can't remember the name of it, but I know the librarian, David Gura, and Hegsberg, Hegsberg Library at the University of Notre Dame, uh, where it's another sort of collection of significant uh, reproductions. Pontifical Institute in Toronto has something like 12,000 microfilms in its collection, in addition to the dozens of manuscripts that they own themselves. Um, because essentially all the scholars who have worked at U of T over the years, uh, when they retire, they've just been giving their collect collected microfilms to the library. And that's how it's they've accumulated 12,000 of them over... Uh, I mean, at last count, it was 12,000, and that count is some years back at this point. So, yeah. I wanted to thank Professor Pereka for doing this interview with me. I learned a lot about how you conduct your research and how that has changed over time. Our conversation has shown that conducting manus manuscript research has become more cost-effective through reduction in travel costs, thanks in large part to digitization. But concerns still abound by scholars working on these materials about the cost of digitizing manuscripts, the lack of completed digitized collections, as well as ongoing issues of data migration and the constant cost of maintaining digital repositories for materials. I found the comments on teaching the upper year paleography course to be particularly interesting as it is perhaps the most obvious way in which digitization has become a pedagogic aid as the courses went from photocopies of microfilm to a high-res scan displayed on a screen of an original manuscript. Again, Professor Pereka, thank you for your time, and I hope we can talk again soon. I also want to thank Professor Mayhew for allowing me to do interviews and develop this podcast for my final assignment. It was a fun way to avoid writing another academic paper and has been thoroughly enjoyable. Finally, thank you all for listening to me drone on, and I hope this conversation has sparked some interest or further questions about manuscript studies and digitization projects. If you would like to reach out, both myself and Pro Professor Pereka agreed to have our emails included in the comments below. So you can reach me at jtardif2 at uwo.ca. That is T-A-R-D-I-F, one F. And Professor Pereka has also offered to provide his email at dporeka, P-O-R-R-E-C-A, at uwaterloo.ca. Feel free to reach out with any questions you have on the topic. Thank you again for your time, and have a good day.